<laughs> I have some questions. Um, and then uh, my daughter was in, uh, last year she was in like a, a combined history and English class, and they were talking about the Bible, and the, the woman started, uh, the, the teacher started saying things that she said were in the Bible, and Ariel being Ariel was going, uh, no, <laughs> that's not in the Bible. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it was something that, you know, it was a very uh, kind of a pop understanding of the Bible, but not really a solid understanding. So what, what did the Bible authors, the, the human authors of the Bible believe about the scriptures? Now we can go to the New Testament and we can find Second uh, Peter 1, we can go to Second to Timothy, um, where, where Timothy, or uh, uh, um, Paul says to Timothy, you know, you knew the Holy Scriptures, that they're, they're inspired of God, um, that they're, they're useful for, for reproof and direction, correction and instruction and righteousness. Um, the, the, the apostles, the New Testament, they definitely believed that the Old Testament was the Scriptures. But, but what does it mean to be Scripture? Because if you poll world religions, you will find that scripture means something very different in different contexts. Uh, for example, um, if, you, uh, if you are studying Hinduism, all right, and you start to study their scriptures, first of all, you will discover that the Bible is tame in comparison um, to, to uh, their scriptures. But secondly, they do not treat them as authoritative. They're just kind of stories. They tell you about the gods. They tell you about karma. They tell you um, to not touch untouchable people. You know, they tell you, do good in this life. You'll get reincarnated into a better life. Do worse. You're going to wind up a cricket. I mean, there, there's, um, you know, and, and we could look at the scriptures of, of Buddhism, which Buddhism, you know, Buddhism in the West has become a religion, but Buddhism in the East tends to be just something that's superimposed on other languages uh, or other religions. And you could read the writings of the Buddha um, and you kind of read them and go, okay, this is some interesting principles and interesting ideas, but they're not, they're not authoritative. There's all these different interpretations of them. Um, and even when we go to, when we go to the, the, our own heritage and we go to Judaism, and Judaism, they have their, the scriptures, the Tanakh, the, the law, the prophets, uh, the writings. Um, but then they have this oral law. They have the, the, the Mishnah, and, and the Mishnah and with its interpretations called the Talmud, and then there's Hagith, and there's all, these, there's all this stuff that gets added. But they don't treat those as scripture. In fact, they don't even really teach, treat the Old Testament. A lot of times they treat treated as kind of figurative stories and ideas, unless the rules support their position, then they're absolute. You know, and what does it mean that Christianity is a revealed faith? What does it mean that we believe in the revelation of the Bible, that God revealed himself through the written word? So I want to give you a couple of thoughts. Um, this is not going to be like a, a seminary lecture on bibliology or anything like that, but I want, to, I, want to, I want to give you some thoughts. And the first one, that I want you to, to think of the Bible this way, that, that the, the authors of the Scriptures viewed the Scriptures as the meeting of eternal truth and human creativity. They, they, they viewed the scriptures not as something that God kind of forged in heaven and dropped on the head of people like, um, like the Mormons do. Um, and and they, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, they, they believe the Book of Mormon was translated by Joseph Smith from the original Egyptian hieroglyphics. 
can't say it with a straight face. Anyway, um, so uh, using a pair of sacred sunglasses. Um, not kidding. And uh, and 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 basically, they, they you know they they believed that their scriptures were dropped in one place. Um, I was talking to a Muslim, uh, a, a Mormon elder one time. I said to him, "So you believe that God, um, God." Just in case the Judaism and the church failed and blew it, God had a safe deposit box in upstate New York. And the guy looked at me and goes, I've never thought of it that way, but that's a great way to describe it. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Your God needed a safe deposit box? Um, so anyway... Um, so, they, and I don't mean to mock world religions or millions of people that agree with them, but, but they mock us, so it's fair. Um, the, the scriptures are the meeting of eternal truth and human creativity. And, and we see this in the Bible repeated over and over again. We have this idea that, that Moses, right? So, so Moses, he goes on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb and, and God reveals to him the, the commandments. And we, we have this idea that, you know, God gives him the commandments and, and when we read, you know, of course, we've got Charlton Heston in our minds, these big rounded tablets and he, he comes walking down, you know, and he gets, he gets angry because of the golden calf. Um, and, uh, you know, and, it, and really, honestly, the, first of all, the tablets probably were not written in, if, you, if you've seen the Ten Commandments, um, and there's a whole generation that did not has not lived in a world where Ten Commandments is played every Easter. I don't I don't know how to tell you. It was the like the event of the year. That thing is like 83 hours long. Um, but anyway, uh, and, and Charlton Heston's baby blanket becomes his robe. It's like Superman. It just grows. Um, but he has these tablets. And they're written in what's called Paleo-Hebrew. Uh, that, that's not what would have happened. Uh, the description of the idea of a tablet is actually something that would have fit in your hand. And if you think about it, um, later on, the, the tablets of the law are put in the Ark of the Covenant, which is only about this big. So if, if, if you know, Moses, you know, just like, just fold it in half and, you know, rock origami, um, they, they would have been, been smallish tablets, um, and they, they probably would have been written on the inside and the outside um, in a, a uniform text because uh, the Hebrew text didn't exist yet um, at that time period. But Moses receives not only that, but he, he receives a huge amount of stuff. I mean, you read through uh, Leviticus and Numbers, it's just a tremendous amount of stuff that God reveals to Moses um, on uh, Mount Sinai. And, and so you have this moment where then Moses has to, he has to repeat what God gives him. And so God has to empower him to speak this and to write this and to preserve this. Um, we look at David um, writing the Psalms and, and, and so many songs. He's called the great psalmist of Israel. And how David uh, gives us some of the greatest words of all of Western civilization. I mean, Psalm 23, Psalm 1. Um, these are tremendous, tremendous songs. And, and he's actually described as the great songwriter of Israel. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I mean, he's got some hits and then he's got some B-sides, you know, the ones about making, preparing my arm, my hands for war. We don't sing that one. Um, but, uh, and then we have Solomon and he directly writes the Proverbs and we have it recorded in First Kings that he wrote these Proverbs, many 
Proverbs. And then we have the book of Proverbs that, that has, uh, is divided up into sections. We have the Psalms of Solomon. And then we have the Psalms of Solomon connect, collected by King Hezekiah, who's a later king who goes back and gathers up more Psalms from Solomon. Um, and then we have all this creative work. And, and, and we could look at the Old Testament and we could look at the subject of the prophets. All right, so how many of you um, at some point in either the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel went, I'm exhausted. I can't read any more of this. This is too much. This is so overboard. Ezekiel is like a multimedia drug trip. I mean, Ezekiel's crazy. There's discs floating in the sky, and at one point, God has him cut half his hair off and burn it in a fire. He has him lay in the mud, and then a year later, flip over and lay on the other side. You're looking at it going, what is going on in this book? Uh, and what is happening here? And, and most of it, I, you, can be, you can look at it and say, here is God's eternal truth infusing human creativity and expression and, and being something special and unique. Um, now, that, that doesn't mean that every weird vision that somebody says they got from God is the revealed word of God. So, what is the defining factor? And the defining factor starts with the big ideas that we've started to talk about. If somebody comes and has a, a, a passage, an authoritative passage, and it defies some of the core things we talked about in the book of Genesis in the first few weeks, we know immediately, not the Word of God. Not Scripture. Somebody comes and says, God created the world by boiling a giant bowl of pasta and pouring it out into a strainer, and the water that was strained out became the ocean. We can kind of go, nah, and you need help. <laughs> but it, by the same token, if we have somebody come along and they say, they say you know what, it, it's, it's not sin to, to practice fornication. It's not sin to practice murder as long as it's a reasonable murder. You know, it's not a, it's not a sin to steal from other people as long as you call it, as long as you have a non-profit and you can invest that money in it. And when people come along and they say, well, they start to present, well, though God said, um, there was in the 70s, there was this really well-known uh, female evangelist um, who, um, who at one point told everyone that God had revealed to her that she should divorce her husband and marry another man for the sake of the ministry. That should have been an immediate red flag. God does not call us to violate a greater covenant for our lesser actions. Right? Never. It just doesn't do it. And so we have the test of Scripture. We first and foremost, we've got to start with this idea of if it defies what we already know from the Word of God. And this is what Peter said, the passage we looked at the beginning. He said, look, if, if what the apostles said somehow, it, it said oh, the prophets are all wrong about Messiah, they don't understand, then we would immediately have questions. But Peter says that's not what happened. We saw in Jesus the fulfillment of the message of the prophets. So what does it mean to create Scripture? Um, assuming that we're dealing with somebody who, we start right from the beginning, we're dealing with somebody who's inspired of God. So we're talking about prophets and poets. Um, and those two things, by the way, are not exclusive to each other 
in Hebrew and, and Greek culture. It, it always, this is a side tangent, I'm coming right back to that. It always amazes me that people think that theology, it's okay for theology and sermons and stuff to be dry and dull and boring. You don't need to be creative in those areas because it's Jesus stuff. Those same people then go, oh, did you hear the symphony, the opera, the rock star? The way, oh, it was so amazing. It was so creative. The way that they did it was so beautiful. It was amazing. But when it comes to theology, dry, dull, boring, that's good. In fact, the more Latin words you can jam into a theology book, the more you can sell it for. Especially if you can quote German in the footnotes. That's what I've discovered. Quote a little German and everybody goes, oh, he's a serious theologian. Um, we, anyway, prophecy and poetry, they are not mutually exclusive. The idea that, well, you know, we write music, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to charge your music with all the theology and beliefs. Well, I mean, I found a, a pretty good solution to that, which is if I write a song, I just take the words from the Bible. That way, um, you know, it's not plagiarism because they're all dead and it's been thousands of years. But also, um, that's the eternal word of God. I can just set it to music and we're good to go, right? I mean, that, that's a simple approach. It's worked for me because I'm not a very poetic person. You know, roses are red, violets are blue, 12. Um, anyway, we want to look at the book of Jeremiah and we want to look at a particular episode where God uses a prophet to, um, to preserve his word and we want to look at the exchange that happens. Now, this is happening at the end of the, the 7th century B.C., so around the year 600 B.C. Um, and it's in Jeremiah chapter 36. And Jeremiah is... Um, his job description as a prophet was literally God saying to him and saying, Jeremiah, I am going to give you the worst job imaginable. I am going to put words in your mouth that tell everybody their kingdom is going to fall, they're going to go into exile, and their families are going to be slaughtered. And Jeremiah went, are you sure, God? Are you sure that's the message you want me to give? And he says, yes, absolutely. This is what I want you to say. And so Jeremiah spends his entire life as a negative, naysaying troublemaker to the point that one king, the last king that deals with him, takes him and dumps him in a mud pit up to his armpits and just leaves him there because that way he would be quiet. His entire job is to walk into the court of the king of Judah in Jerusalem, and the king of Judah is sitting with all his generals going, okay, so the Babylonians are coming, they're going to come and they're going to conquer the city, so we're going to fortify this point, we're going to establish this, we're going to store some corn, we're going to make sure the water supply, and Jeremiah walk in and going, the Babylonians are going to come and take you all into exile and kill your family and take all your stuff. You can understand how popular he was. He was not, you know, he was not a, a, uh, a well-liked guy. So in Jeremiah chapter 36 and verse 1, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, um, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the, from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. So the very first thing we get about scripture is that it's written. It's written. Um, now this, this sounds like a, a simple idea, but there's a very really valid reason that we have to understand that the scriptures were written. It's called the game of telephone. If God inspires you to say something to somebody else and say, just pass it along, 
it's not going to get passed along very long before it becomes something else. I mean, you guys have all played the game telephone when you were little, right? Some of us play it right now with family members. You're like, we're going to be a birthday party on Tuesday. Okay, I'm going to clear my schedule. I'm going to get there on Tuesday. You get there, they go, the birthday party's on Thursday. I told your sister to tell you that. You know, that, that kind of thing. This, this, is what, this is what happens in the real world. So the scriptures are written. When, when Jeremiah's ministry is coming to an end, God says to Jeremiah, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. Now, I'm a, a radical, so I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that I'm enough of a pointy-headed fundamentalist that I believe that what that means is that the Bible was written down. So I don't believe that Genesis was just like ideas and thoughts and people were borrowing from cultures and eventually somebody decided to put it down thousands of years after it was written. I believe that Genesis was written. You say, well, what about Genesis 1? I mean, God creates the world. Where, did that, where would that have come from? I actually happen to believe, and I know this is ludicrous and insane and ridiculous, but hey, I believe and Jesus was raised from the dead, so you know, I'm going to go with it. I believe that God said to Adam, let me tell you how I created the world. I'm going to give you a nice poem about how I created the world, and I believe that Adam wrote it down, and he passed it down to his son Seth, and Seth passed it down, passed it down, passed it down. I believe that Abraham had it. I believe the people of Israel took it with them into, into, uh, into, into Egypt, and when they came out, when they finally got to uh, Palestine, I think they started copying it. I thought, I believe that's the story that God told Adam. Now, can I prove it? Can I take out the tablet and say, this is the one that Adam actually sat down and wrote this out? No, I can't, but I believe that the Bible is written I don't believe the Bible is just a collection of sayings that people twisted and warped to make, um, to make their religion sound good. Because honestly, if this was the best we could do to make our religion sound good, we've got issues. I mean, some of the stuff that's in here, I mean, some of the stuff that's in the Bible, you sit there and go, dear God, it would be great if you could lose that chapter. Because um, that one is weird. You know, people sacrificing their kids and, I mean, just nutsy stuff. So take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you. So the scriptures are written, all right? They're written down. They're, they're not just opinions. They're not just ideas. And verse 3, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do them. This is a very common uh, prophetic theme. Uh, the, the word disaster is the word evil. Um, it appears all the time in, in the prophets. So that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So this is the second aspect of the revealed word of God. The purpose of the revealed word of God is to call men and women to turn from their evil and to, to repent and that God may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Uh, that's the purpose of the Bible. Then Jeremiah called Barak the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. Now, side note, the historian's going to come out for a second. This is a really, really cool thing, and I want to tell you guys this. We have seal impressions from Barak the son of Neriah. He is a historical person. They have found scrolls with his seal impression on them. All right, called Boulay, B-U-L-L-A-E. These impressions of the seal of the scribe. He's actually called the scribe Barak the son of Neriah. That's really, really cool. All right. Um, and, and I could, I'd be happy to share with you some of the stuff about that. But so he says to Barak, Jeremiah ordered Barak, and he said, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. Because that's, you know, that's the best way 
to make sure that you never hear negative things from God ban the prophet from the house of the Lord. He says, I, Jeremiah ordered Barak saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go. And on a day of fasting in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their city. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. And Barak the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So uh, if the first thing about the scriptures is it's written down, it's preserved, the second thing is that it is a living, active part of the worship of believers. It's meant to be read aloud. Now there's nothing wrong with your private sitting at the reading your Bible in the morning quietly listening to you know whatever music you listen to or no music or whatever you read the Bible and you meditate and all that there's nothing wrong with that but the scriptures are meant to be read aloud and taught aloud among the people of God So the reason for that is because the people of God have to be called to repentance in verse 9, and in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people, so it took him a year to write down everything that Jeremiah had to give him, all right, in the fifth year of, of this guy, all right, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem, all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a flat fast before the Lord. And then in the hearing of all the people, Barak read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll of the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gamaria, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry at the new gate of the Lord's house. You guys really care about that. Then Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll. He went down to the king's house, into the secretary chamber. All the officials were sitting there. A bunch of guys got together. And then in verse 13, Micaiah told them all, I'm not reading that list. Um, Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Barak read the scroll in the hearing of his people. The officials sent Yehudi, the son of Nathaniah, sent a bunch of guys to Barak. They said, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So Barak, the son of Nerah, Uriah took the scroll in his hand, came to them, and they said, sit down and read it. Barak read it. When they heard the words, they turned to one another in fear. They said in verse 16, we must report all these words to the king. Um, they asked Barak, where did you get it? He said, Jeremiah dictated to me. And then in verse 19, they said, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. The scriptures are meant to be read in public, and the scriptures will irritate and bother those who do not submit to their authority. The word of God does not conform to the opinion of the world. So, when somebody comes to you with the scriptures and says, this thing that the Bible we think says is sin, it's really not that bad, let's not talk about it, let's come up with a way to interpret it in such a way that it doesn't, uh, you know, when we play that game and try to get the Bible to kind of bend around, remember when I talked about sin, that sin is taking something God gives us and twisting it to our own purposes? Bingo! These guys go, Barak, Jeremiah, go hide somewhere because this is not going to go well for you. So they go to the king and they start reading this. Verse 22. It was the ninth month. The king was sitting in the winter house. There was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. 
And as Yehudi read three or four columns of the scroll that Jer Barak had recorded for Jeremiah, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments. That, by the way, is a, a prophetic theme, tearing your garments. You'll see that in the Bible. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. The king commanded Yaramil, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Barak, the secretary, Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Now, after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Barak wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. He said, take another scroll. Write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned. And concerning, the, concerning Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll, saying, why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off, cut, will cut off from it man and beast? And then verse 32, Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Barak the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned into the fire, and many similar words were added to them. The, the third thing that I want you to see about the scriptures, all right? So first of all, um, when we talked about this, the scriptures, is they're written, all right? Secondly, um, they, they, um, they are read publicly, they defy the wisdom of the, of the world. And fourth, they are preserved. They are preserved. Do you know how many letters Paul wrote to the Corinthians? At least four. We only have two. Uh, you, letter writing was such a common thing in the ancient world that I bet First and Second Peter are probably two of a couple dozen letters that Peter wrote, but we only have two. Um, when, when it came time in the church in the, in the third century, the fourth century um, AD, when the church had to decide what is the word of God, what are the scriptures, how do we decide what books are the word of God, one of their primary requirements was that that book had to be accepted by the churches in every region of the empire. So there were books that were wildly popular in Egypt that the church went, well, they're very nice, interesting books, but they're not accepted in the whole empire. So we can't, we can't look at that book and if the Christians in Spain don't accept that as the word of God and yet they're followers of Christ, how, how can we possibly accept that? Uh, one of the other criteria was it had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of apostle. Uh, the third one was the criteria we talked about in the beginning. It could not be in conflict with other inspired scripture. So it was written, right? It was read publicly. Um, it it um, opposed, the, it, was, it was, did not adapt to the wisdom of the world, and it was preserved. The revealed word of God is preserved. Do you know that the, the Greek and Hebrew, so the, just the Greek manuscripts uh, that underlie uh, the New Testament of the Bible, there are well over 6,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, they range everywhere from a couple of words scratched on a piece of papyrus to almost complete codices. Uh, codex is a, a codex is a, a book made of parchment and kind of held together with rope. Um, it's an old way of writing books. Um, scrolls, codices, over 6,000 manuscripts. 
we speak with absolute certainty of the text of the New Testament to the degree that less than 2% of the text of the New Testament has any actual question as to whether it is true or, or it is original or not, and absolutely none of it affects the doctrines of the church. When you consider 6,000 handwritten copies of the New Testament, and we have a 98% accuracy, and, less, and the less than 2% that's left has no major doctrines altered. Most of the variations are the difference between Himon and Himon. Got that? Uh, Himon with a U, that's, uh, that's uh, a second person plural. Himon with an, with an Ida, that's a third person plural. Uh, you know, so, so this, you know, most of them are little, little things like, uh, you know, switching Lord Jesus Christ, maybe it's Jesus Christ the Lord instead of Lord Jesus Christ or Lord Christ Jesus. Um, the variations, 98% absolute, undeniable, despite what critics say, there are lots of people that will walk and say, the Bible, the New Testament has millions of variants. They're lying. They're, ta- they're talking uh, out of the wrong side of their diploma. The Hebrew scriptures, which some of them are 4,000 years old, we have absolute certainty as to the text. It's been preserved almost in a pristine state. We don't know where the vowels go, but we have the text because Hebrew doesn't write their vowels. The revealed word of God is preserved. If tomorrow... You were on an archaeological expedition in Turkey, and someone uncovered a, uh, a, a, a container, and they popped it open, and they drew out of that container, and it said, in the handwriting of Paul, which would be about this big, because he was near blind like me, it said, the first letter to the Corinthians, hey losers, what's up? <laughs> that is not the inspired word of God. It doesn't matter if Paul wrote it. Do you know that we have passages from the book of Daniel that we can speak with reasonable certainty that Daniel did write them, and yet they were not preserved, they were not copied, and so even though we may be able to say, yeah, Daniel wrote this, because we didn't find them until later and they were in a different language and all that stuff, they weren't preserved, they're not in the Bible. There's a whole poem from Barak that, that there's no reason to doubt it isn't authentic, but it didn't. It was never found in Hebrew. It was only found in late Greek manuscripts, not preserved, not the Bible. There, there are books like First and Second Maccabees, which appear in the Bibles of other denominations, um, that were never known as part of the Old Testament, and yet they were treated as part of the Old Testament later. Not preserved, not the Word of God. It's pretty simple when you think about it. If God speaks to his people, his voice will not be silenced. And so we have the word of God. As a Christian, and and as a believer, not just as a pastor, this is the very words of God. Now sometimes I don't understand them. I think I'm in good company. I think we'd all agree with that statement. Sometimes I don't understand where God is going with things. Some moments in the Bible, I go, 
whoa. My dad, when I was young, um, every time I went, um, I, I have a questioning nature, so um, I would say, Dad, I read this story and I don't really understand um, why at the end of the book of Ruth, uh, Boaz takes off his sandal and slaps the other guy in the face. And my dad would say, I want you to write out Deuteronomy 29, 29 for me. You know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, it says, the sacred things belong unto the Lord, but the things which he has revealed, they belong to the sons of men. I can't even tell you how many times I had to write that verse. Um, that and First uh, Peter 3.15, which says, be ready to give an answer unto every man because that was our punishment for not getting our homework done. Um, some of you think about that. Uh, but uh, uh, that was a punishment in my household, by the way, was writing Bible verses. That was how my dad punished us. Um, we got to, he figured it would help us with our handwriting, I guess, and scripture memory, which my brain doesn't memorize words. But um, when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the Bible, what does it mean to believe in a revealed word of God? It means that we believe that they were written. We believe that they were meant for public worship. We mean, it means that it is something that is not conformed to the wisdom of man, and it is something that is preserved. And when the early church in the first, second, third century of the Christian era, after the apostles had written the Gospels and their letters, and by the way, the, there's good evidence that the Apostle Paul accepted the three of the four Gospels, because the fourth one wasn't written until after he was dead, but he accepted uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there are allusions to those, the, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, in his letters, that he was aware of them, he treated them as Scripture. There's good evidence that Peter does that. Peter treats Paul's writings as Scripture. And so when the church said, how do we know what God has said to us? How do, we, how do we make the decision as to what is orthodox faith? What is the word of God? They looked for those things that had been written, those things that were used publicly in the church, those things that were not conformed to the wisdom of the world, and those things which were preserved. That's what it means for us to believe in the revealed word of God. And that has not changed since the days of Jeremiah, since the days of Moses. Now God inspired along the way new stages. The Bible has basically five stages. You have, the, you have the, the Torah, you have the prophets, you have the writings, you have the gospels, you have the epistles. There are basically five stages of the development of the gospel, of the, of the scriptures. Um, and we won't get into why we know it's closed. I just don't have time for that. Um, but that's the criteria. So what does it mean to believe in the Bible? It, believe, it means that God revealed to us his written word, it is publicly used, it, it does not, is not influenced by the wisdom of the world, and it's preserved for all time. That's what it means. That's what Jeremiah believed, it's what Paul believed, it's what the Gospels believed, it's by the way what Jesus believed. And that's what we should believe. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, you have given us the very words of life, revealed to us through prophets and poets, through theologians and singers, and sometimes through the same people, through sinners and saints. May you be glorified as we look to these, the written words, and see in them the living word, Jesus. May your spirit guide our study May he lead us into all truth. We pray this in your name alone. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.